You're listening to the Pimp Cron Podcast. Hey everybody, hello friends, old and new. Episode 189 of the Pimp Cron Warhammer Podcast is upon you. Yes, it's that time. So tonight, we, or today, I don't know when you're listening to this, okay? Just, you know, fill in the blank. At this moment while you're listening to this, we are discussing two things tonight, because the real talk goes on for a bit, and it was quite a bit to edit. Um, I have done a three-hour interview with Alan Merritt, which, of course, was one of GW's earliest employees, and he did practically every single position in Games Workshop as they grew and Citadel Miniatures, and he ultimately was like the IP manager for all of their intellectual property. And he retired about five, six years ago, and uh, he worked on Age of Sigmar as like his last project with the new release of Age of Sigmar. And um, anyway, it is a fascinating talk. And tonight specifically, or this morning, whatever you mean, um, we're actually discussing the making of White Dwarf, and he actually made White Dwarf for a couple years and helped edit that and lay it out and all that. So I thought it'd be really interesting to ask him about White Dwarf and how they actually made it. Now, we're talking about like the early 90s here, so technology was pretty archaic, and he explains exactly how they had to put the magazine together. He also explains why GW's White Dwarf is essentially just a catalog for their own product, and they don't have advertisers or any of that stuff. And he talks about the reason why that is. So all that is very interesting to me. I love to hear the guts of how organizations operate and how things are made, and hopefully that interests you too. Um, I have a lot more Alan Merritt interview where that came from, but I edited just the White Dwarf part, and that is the real talk for today or tonight. And we also have a letter from good old Leroy Jenkins, Patreon sponsor, and he's trying to rustle my jimmies. That's basically, that's basically what he's doing. So we'll see how I respond to my jimmies being rustled. And, oh, by the way, wanted to mention to you that GameMat.eu is the sponsor of this show. Go figure. If you're a regular listener, you already know that. They've got pre-painted terrain, STL files, and... The, I think it's called neoprene, the mouse pad material mats that I absolutely love. I own like 40 of them. And also my Patreon patrons that are so nice and so humble as to help support the show. I greatly appreciate it. So what did I do this week? Oh, well, I went to the gaming club and I ended up playing Warhammer 40k. And I brought my custodies and James brought his AOS Beastmen. And I played my custodies versus James's Beastmen, and his Beastmen is an army completely consisting of just Brayherd Shamans. He's got like, I think it's like 60 Brayherd Shamans, and he just made a whole army out of that. And my Custodes, I only own that one captain, that one named captain, so I've got like 45 of him. And we just play, I'm just kidding, what am I talking about here? No, actually, we tried to go to the gaming store this week. And then my uh, my caliper got stuck on my truck about 25 minutes from home. <laughs> and it just decided, like, hey, guess what? I'm going to clamp on your wheel now. So we had to get my brother to come, and we had to pry open the caliper. And it was, it was a big old, big old ordeal. 
And it, we didn't get done until probably the middle of my what would normally be my gaming time at the club. So we usually start our games by about six o'clock and we got done with this whole ordeal at about 730. So we decided to just go back home. So that was really fun. Um, but we did make up for it the next day because I said, look, James, we both happen to be off work the next day. I said, come on over. We'll play some Warhammer because we missed out on our Warhammer chance. So the game that actually did happen is my custodian. I'm kidding. I don't own custodies and he doesn't have Beastmen really. He's I think he's got a couple models. That's why that was a fictional story for those of you not keeping up. He came over and we played. Gosh, what did we even play? I don't even recall. Oh, I played my Imperial Guard, and what did he play? Uh, he played his Dark Eldar, is what he played. And from... <laughs> it, I hope this doesn't start sounding like a broken record, because my first turn, we were playing a 5th edition battle missions mission from that supplement back in 5th edition. So the rules are a little bit different, etc., but we basically have been making it work. And it's kind of fun because it's very different from all the secondaries and all that of the current edition. And he got to deploy up to 50% of the board with his Drakari, and I knew I was in trouble. But I won the roll-off, and I got to go first. So all of my tanks, all of my everything, we castled around my tanks, and we shot everything at him that we could. And I am not lying to you, I could not roll a 4-up to hit. I'm not, I'm, like, I, at one point, I rolled, like, nine four-ups, and I hit one time, and then I rolled a one to wound. I mean, I fired my entire army at him, and I did not kill a single model. I put a couple hit points off a raider, and uh, a couple hit points off another raider, but, like, my battle cannons are D3 damage, right? Cool story, bro. Damage, one. Damage, one. Reroll it damage one I'm like okay well that's that's fine and that became yeah it was it was pretty darn frustrating so starting with the first maybe the top of the second turn I was rolling so terrible that I told him I'm like oh well this game is over because he was in my face at that point and you know Drakari is very fast and even though he only had some anti-tank stuff and I had a bunch of tanks he had an I mean he took the avatar cane as a auxiliary detachment so yeah, it was it was pretty rough. Kane was beating me, and uh, it was one of those things where I'm just sitting there going, "Yep, I I am completely out of this game." And then he wounds me, and I can't save it. And then I strike back, and I don't hit. And then if I do get lucky enough to do one wound, then it's like one damage instead of D three. I'm like, ugh, it was it was bad. So it was it was moderately miserable. <laughs> <laughs> which is funny because every time that happens with me and James and James is rolling terrible by about turn two, I can see he's not having fun. And I'm like, you know what? Let's call it because I don't even, I'm not enjoying it. If you're not enjoying it, like this is supposed to be a thing, but good old James, I guess he wanted to, um, roto rooter my colon. Cause that's what he did. So, <laughs> and truly, you know, I, it wasn't, even though my Imperial Guard is an 8th edition codex still at this point, and his Eldar are fairly nasty right now, the difference is that I got the first turn. So I really could have put a serious hurting on him. I could have, I should have at least, we said statistically, I should have destroyed both of those raiders with the amount of hits and wounds and everything that I 
was able to put on it, but then I would roll ones to wound, or I would roll one damage, or then he'd save it with his five up in vol, or, or whatever the case may be. It was very rough. So hopefully this week, I think I have a, a brutality match coming up this week, a campaign game scheduled. So we'll see how that goes. But it was a, uh, it's another one of those times. I feel like I've said so many times lately that my rolling sucks. I feel like it's like every other game or every third game, I'm just 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 rolling turds. I don't know if that's the case or not, but certainly feels like I'm saying that every other week on the podcast. Oh, well, such is dice, right? All right, let's get on the next segment. Let's open the Tesseract mailbox. Hey, it's the Tesseract mailbox. Go figure, right? So we get an email this week from, what's his name? Uh, Leroy Jenkins. And he's a valiant Patreon patron, by the way. I just wanted to, I just thought I would, you know, whatever. Anyway, email at pimpcron at gmail.com. He sends one. And this is probably the weirdest intro to a Tesseract mailbox ever. But he writes, hey, Pimpalicious, you see that new GW supplement? That company is a genius. Before you get all, no, they're not. Hear me out. Games Workshop just created a lot of buzz around their flagship game. First, announcing it a week before. Everyone is anxiously awaiting the update. Then, it comes out. Wham! Huge changes. Everything is turned upside down. Not only do you need to rewrite your lists, you need to relearn how it affects armies you will play against. Keeps people's eyes and interest on a game. Might need a few different models. Balance it be damned. They created buzz and sales, and it seems like they care. Huge PR and sales win. Even my casual friend, yes, I do have one friend, hashtag bragging, was very excited about Armor of Contempt and wanted to try it out ASAP. Love, Leroy Jenkins. Well, you know, Leroy, you're not really wrong in saying this. You know what my stance is going to be on your comments, but... If I'm being completely fair and honest, yes, these updates and FAQs and all of that do keep people interested in the game. They do keep the game fresh and they change it and it's always mutating into something different and it does change the meta. There comes a time when you play a game or you're part of an organization or whatever and they continuously do things that you kind of wish they didn't do. And eventually, you have to kind of realize, and this works for relationships too, if you're with someone that constantly doesn't put you, maybe not first, but at least put you high up on the list of priority, right? If they constantly do things that are against you, or that, you know, you wish they didn't do, and you ask them politely, and they do it anyway, and that sort of thing, disregard for you, you eventually have to come to the realization that maybe you are not their main priority, or in this case, I and my type of player, the casual, the let's have fun, the narrative, we may not be Games Workshop's number one demographic that they're catering to. What they're clearly catering to since uh, vaguely 8th edition, but especially 9th edition, is the tournament crowd, the hyper-competitive or at least semi-competitive people that get bored easily, and they follow the meta. Not all of them, but many of them at least keep their eye on the meta. Let's say that. Because many of these people that are semi-competitive or whatever, they don't actually chase the meta. But they definitely know what is the meta, correct? 
Whereas I generally have no idea what the meta is. <laughs> like, I could not give a crap. I don't use FAQs when I play Warhammer. I don't, I just don't use them. I don't use FAQs. I don't use errata. I don't care. Whatever my book says is whatever I do. And the same thing goes for you. You can pick whatever rule set you like the most. You want all these FAQ things posted, noted into your codex, then you knock yourself out. Because really, the FAQs don't apply to me. And it might sound like like I'm a Karen or something, but truly, I am not the player these FAQs are based around. I'm not min-maxing. I, typically, any list I ever bring is usually a Highlander list, with the exception of maybe troops. I might bring two troops or whatever, but um, most of my armies are a Swiss Army knife, most of my lists I make. So then I'm like, oh, well... Here's two heavies, and here's two fast, and here's two troops, and here's two HQ. Maybe throw in a flyer, blah, blah, blah. I am not their target audience for all of these changes. So if they do something that tweaks, you know, or tones down or whatever a unit, I don't really care, and I'm not going to use it. Now, a tournament is a completely different story. You really, truly do have a responsibility to be up on all the FAQs and the errata and all of that stuff for your army if you're playing a tournament. That's part of your responsibility of knowing your codex, right? But I'm talking about 99 per... I mean, I go to like, what, three tournaments a year, maybe? And none of them are like professional tournaments. Most of them are pretty laid back, just chill, hanging out kind of tournaments. And God knows my convention is pretty much like that, too. But... I am beginning to realize that I am not Games Workshop's core demographic. So they can stay in their lane and keep it competitive and keep it functioning for the highly competitive people or even the moderately competitive people. They can keep that interesting for them and keep churning out new supplements and FAQs and all this stuff to keep the meta fresh. And Leroy, you're not really wrong in what you're saying. I'm going to have to concede to what your point is of this email it probably is doing wonders for keeping the community active and all of that compared to when i played in fifth edition you know i was playing with a third edition necron codex because it had been like 12 years and they had never maybe it was eight years but it had been like around a decade since necrons got a new codex and eldar and tau back then were notoriously in the same boat the Eldar had a codex just as old as the Necrons. So if you're going from that to this, clearly I do feel like this new modern way of doing things is probably better for the community and is probably better for the meta and the balance of the game. But, dude, I don't care. You, you could tell me whatever these FAQs say and I'm just not going to use it. <laughs> so <laughs> James told me something about uh, something about power armor is ignore rend one or something of that nature. And I'm like, cool story, bro. I don't care. I'm not going to play with that role. I just truly don't care. Um, so, you know, you call me lazy. And honestly, I wonder, I often wonder why I have this opinion of all of the FAQs and all that stuff. Partially, it's because I feel like I got a lot going on in my life between the kids and the wife and the, and the, the work and the brutality and the making you know brutality things and and all that stuff and shorthammer and the podcast and all that so my free time is pretty full with things i actually want to do versus look through faqs and then 
try to remember or edit my codex so that it reflects the new changes. I'm just, ugh, dude, I just don't have the patience. It's not in me. I don't have the gumption to memorize all these constant changes. So I used to try to stay up on the FAQs a little bit when they first started just pouring out of the gate monthly or whatever they're doing now. But uh, I just don't care. And truly, me not using the FAQs probably, in most cases, hurt me more than they hurt my opponent. Because a lot of these, like this AP ignoring nonsense, it probably does hurt me in the long run. But I don't care. I just don't. I can't be bothered with it. So I'm going to keep, I'm just going to stay in my corner of the hobby. I'm going to enjoy playing narrative games. I'm going to enjoy playing my casual games with my friends. And then Games Workshop can do whatever they need to do to make sure they stay in business and continue producing the game that I love. And if that means placating all of the more competitive players and keeping them engaged and keeping the meta fluid and flexible, you know what? You you go do that, GW. I don't hate you for it. You got to stay in business. And, you know, they always say that casuals, and I've seen polls that say casual players make up the majority of the player base. but uh, I don't know, man. You keep catering to the tournament players, and it seems to be working. So maybe it's the casual players like me just don't give it any bother. We just don't even bother with the changes. I don't know. But I'm certainly not mad at Games Workshop for trying to stay in business and, and catering to the population that is probably buying more models than I am. The people that, you know, try to stay competitive and they try and stay on the edge of what is best for their army and, and all that, you know... You do you, boo. I don't care. Anyway, Leroy, I know you're probably trying to antagonize me, but you do have some truth in what you're saying. So I am going to actually flip it on you, and I'm going to pull out an Uno reverse card and actually say, you know what? You're probably right. Now it's time for Real Talk with Pentcron. Hello, everybody. This is Real Talk with the Pimpcron, and I am here again with Mr. Alan Merritt from Games Workshop. How are you today, Mr. Alan? Uh, very well, thank you, Scott. Um, yeah, um, previously with Games Workshop, I would I would hasten to add. <laughs> oh, yeah. So you've been retired for uh, a couple of years now, right? Yeah. Uh, actually, it's um, six years. Oh. Crazy. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was roughly when Age of Sigmar came out, right? I think is what you said before. Yeah, that was my last, my last, um, my last big project with with Games Workshop. Um, Age of Sigmar, the last, pretty much the last, but really major impact I think I had on the company. Well, I've got a bunch of uh, listener questions for you, and I've got a couple questions of my own. So you had mentioned uh, your work a little bit on White Dwarf, right? you know, with the, the ads and all that. So, well, I guess we'll start with White Dwarf questions. Number one, it seems like with the the improved technology and everything of today, it seems like the whole graphic design and all that should be infinitely easier and simpler than it used to be. Because I, I pick up some of my old White Dwarfs from like um, around 2000 era. And um, and their computers, you know, their, their, their screens aren't very good. And a lot of times it's like the green or the orange or whatever, you know, the, the amber colors. And it just seems like it would be such an uphill battle to design any. Do you have anything to comment on about that? Like, what was the process? I guess it was a, a program on a computer, right? I mean, you didn't, you didn't physically lay it out, did you? 
Oh yes, <laughs> yes. Way back in the day, when when Games Workshop and 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 Systominus merged together and became like one entity, the chap who was in charge at the time, a chap called Brian Ansell, decided to move everything onto one site. And Games Workshop was based in London. Citadel Ministries was based in Nottingham. And so he had a choice. Do I move Citadel to, to London or do I move Games Workshop up to Nottingham from London? And he decided to do the latter. So um, uh, we, we pretty much got rid of all of the London-based staff. A few very impressive members of staff did move up from London and, and had enjoyed very long and successful careers at Games Workshop, including chaps like Jervis Johnson, for example, is one of those. But um, we pretty much moved lock, stock and barrel the, the entire all the functions that that Games Workshop was doing in London up to Nottingham. And the last, pretty much the last thing we moved was, was White Wolf production. Mm. And the simple reason was because we didn't have any experience at all about putting together a monthly magazine. So we had no idea what that entailed. And uh, one of my jobs was to go visit this little group of people in London who were still manfully producing White Dwarf in this deserted office building, this <laughs> deserted factory, um, uh, feeling very sorry for themselves, knowing inevitably that their jobs were going to be disappearing too sweet, you know, anytime soon. And then this idiot from up north, Alan, would come in and ask all these dumbass questions about <laughs> how do you do this then? How does that work? And why do you do that that way? And how do you pay for that? And how does that work? And da, da, da. And uh, I'm sure they used to fear fear me turning up, but uh, we had no we had no option. We didn't. Uh, I, we had to learn how to put a magazine together. But in those days, it was it was all stuck together using cow gum and layout sheets. It was all hand hand done. Really? Oh yeah. Oh yes. yes. And uh, quite a big part of the commercial value of the magazine was um, the classified ads, which made a lot of money. And we're an enormous pain because they just imagine pages with all these little quarter page and eighth page and half page. And so it's a massive pain kind of um, keeping all that up together and pasting it all up every month and making sure that the right ads went in and it had the right information and that the people that, were, that bought those ads had provided you with the right information. And, and then that they were paying. It was just a nuisance. Um, not much fun, but all that, that once we got it to Nottingham um, and none of the none of the staff decided they wanted to relocate to Nottingham. So we had to install a completely new editorial team and completely new production unit to, to, to do it. And that was called the studio. <laughs> so we, just, we just added it to our workload. It became a thing. Yeah, it was uh, it was all. Uh, what's Americans phrase is seat of our pants yeah yeah (laughs) and I think when we when we got the magazine to Nottingham it was still a magazine that covered a broad spectrum of of hobby gaming and I think I think a lot of a lot of uh, games workshop um, customers games workshop enthusiasts and a lot of non-games workshop hobbyists because there are such people I believe Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people have always gone Ah, White Dwarf. It was better when before it became a house magazine and devoted only solely to Games Workshop products. And what they all failed to understand, I'm sorry, I'm rude about it, but but um, it 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 was only ever about 
products that Games Workshop sold. The reason why it had D&D and Call of Cthulhu and, you know, Stormbringer RPG and other, you know, um, other other products featured in it, as well as Warhammer and um, such like, was because Games Workshop distributed those products. We were a distributor. We, we, we had European distribution rights for D&D and for vast numbers of American games the business started by being an importer of and distributor of D&D mm-hmm. in its original form that's how it got started as one of the big moments in Games Workshop's early history was securing that distribution contract so Games Workshop Games Workshop's magazine White Wolf was always about products that Games Workshop not necessarily produced but certainly products that Games Workshop sold mm. um, and had a vested interest in when we moved the business to Nottingham, it became clear that we needed to trim the the product offer and take out a lot of the low or non-profitable lines, the low profit and non-profitable lines. And there were quite a lot of those in on the catalogue. And those were all the products that kind of went away, really. And D&D went with them, not because that wasn't profitable, but we weren't selling it then. You know, TSR UK had been established and they were doing their own thing. They had their own magazine. Was that called Imagine? Imagine, I think it was called. Um, I don't know. Yeah. So they had, uh, they became arch competitors in a way, you know, they were mm-hmm. competing for the same shelf space in, 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 in game stores. So that's the reason we, the content kind of shifted over to becoming much more focused on games workshop products and, Games Workshop licensed products, but we we would um, we would be pasting up by hand, and there's many a month where the last day possible to get a page finished, and off to the Repro Graphics house so that it could be printed in time to be meet the publishing deadlines or the distribution deadlines. There's many a month when myself and and one or two other members of staff would be in the studio at sort of two in the morning pasting up <laughs> trade ad, trade 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 adverts and things you know, just... so you would have to actually type up these and then print them out and then paste them onto the page and lay them out that way yeah we had a huge machine in the in the studio a typesetting machine a type uh, a machine that would take text that you type in and turn it into publishable galley text hmm. you get this text and it'd be on a long a long reel like a reel of like a till receipt almost mm-hmm. with all the print ready type on it and then you'd take those um, rolls of type and you'd literally glue them onto layout pages to make them match up and things yeah now what about photographs because printers weren't that great back then the typical printer did you have some sort of fantastic printer that could <laughs> print these pictures out and then like paste it oh um, all the black and white stuff we 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 did um semitone basically you you take a photograph in a we had a dark room and you using a plate camera you take a photograph of the of the black and white illustration but you'd be applying a a filter to it that would turn that into a dot that process then you'd have the the, the images that you then actually would paste directly onto the layout pads hmm. for for color images you um we, the repro, the reprographics house would would do the scans of those and do the and do the four color separations, mm. um, and, and they would charge a fortune to do it. In fact, it was it was the cost of color color reprographics was 
prohibitive, prohibitively expensive. And the thing we desperately wanted to put in White Dwarf magazine was photographs of, guess what, painted toy soldiers. Right? Yeah. And it was just, it was just nightmarishly expensive to do. Um, so we tried all kinds of different sort of workarounds to try and get photographs of colour photographs of painted miniatures in, in White Dwarf. And some listeners might remember some of the early ads seeing these pages of painted miniatures all stood on these steps. And if you remember those, mm, Scott, mm-hmm. well, that, that was that was the idea of saying, well, if we only have to do one set of scans, it's, it's way cheaper than having to do 20 individual scans. Oh. So, so we just experimented and I came up with this idea of building a step display that you could put all the miniatures on and then just take one photograph with the plate camera. Nice. And then it would be a single scan. And uh, that, that actually suddenly unlocked a, a lot of opportunities to put those pages in White Dwarf. That was the fundamentally biggest shift in print technology was that was offered by the um, computer layouts, was um, doing, doing all the layouts electronically and, and on a computer screen um, transformed that aspect of, of paste up and layouts. It mm-hmm. made it so much cheaper to do to do full color printing. Printing um, the printing was never the most expensive part of it. It was doing all the color separations and those individual scans. It was just um, and obviously with the computer generated pre print technologies, your complete color page would be a single process, a single separation. Now, I do have a question for you. Maybe you can answer this for me. You mentioned color separation, and my son and I like to read old comic books, right? And by old, oh, right. I mean, I mean, like, currently we're reading in the early 90s, so it's not that old, but you, you get the old. point. And we thought that it was interesting that they have a, a writer, a penciler, an anchor, and a color separator. So yeah. what exactly is color separation? Because we didn't know what that was. Traditional four-color printing uses four four colors of ink. It uses an ink called cyan, which is like a, a bright but very light blue color. Mm-hmm. Yellow, which is, funny enough, yellow. <laughs> uh, an ink called magenta. And magenta is a kind of a, not a very bright red, but a sort of more like a sort of washed out crimsony kind of color ink. Mm-hmm. And, then you, and then you have black. And what's amazing about the way that color printing works is that by printing dots of those four colors in various concentrations in little patterns mm-hmm. you can recreate you can recreate just about any color not very successfully in some areas but you can certainly create a thing that will simulate most colors and that's how four color printing works that's how four color printing works so if you want a bright red color you would spec the area that you want that color to be and you would spec it as being 100% yellow and 100% magenta and that would give you a colour that, in printing terms, is called warm red, hmm. and is a very bright, clean red colour. If you wanted a, a very, very dark blue, you would spec 100% cyan, and then you'd probably put um, some black and magenta under it. You'd put uh, a percentage um, of black, so it might be 100% cyan, 5% magenta, 5% black, and that would give you a very darker blue. Than just cyan on its own and there are formulas there are set formulas for all these colors because the inks are sort of industry standard and it's called and it's sometimes referred to as cmyk and on some computer screens you can still 
separate your your colours on by CMYK. Mm-hmm. Uh, cyan, magenta, yellow, K for black. The old days, we'd get a, layer, a physical piece of poster with all the galley text pasted on it and the artwork, you know, that being scanned and turned into a dot. And then you'd put a sheet of tracing paper over it and then you'd specify any colours that you wanted the, the line, the text or the areas to be. So you might go print a 10% yellow tint under the whole page, which would make it look a little bit like parchment. Or you huh. might say, take this red, uh, this black line, and make this black line a magenta line or a, or a blue line. And you specify the trace, you'd write on the trace. And then the Reaper Graphics House would, when they were doing the plate for the black, they'd isolate all the black and grey elements make those one plate and then they'd isolate all the cyan elements and if there Hmm. was a thing and if there was a thing that said make this line or this bar say warm red that bar would appear on both the as a solid block it would appear on both the magenta and the yellow plate that's how it works so you can imagine it's quite a lot of fiddle and a lot of fuss i imagine and all those early comics would have been done in exactly the same way. The colorists wouldn't have been coloring in with a pen or a pencil and like that. They would have been marking up on overlays what what colors were to be going in the in in all the spaces in between the black lines. Or wow, those that's yeah. a color separator, huh? Yeah, that's and, interesting. Uh, yeah, and um, it's it, it's only the, by dint of having access to vast amounts of cheap um, color separators and and cheap color printing that um, the American comic industry was able to become what it was in the 60s and 70s when it was you know, they were printing millions and millions of some. At some point, you guys transitioned from, uh, like you said, including other product lines and things like that in your White Dwarf to only focusing on Games Workshop. And is that roughly the time when you stopped accepting advertisers as well? Because yeah, yeah pretty much so. We well, remember we we we. But we, we, White Dwarf magazine focused on the products that Games Workshop made and the products that Games Workshop sold. When the products that Games Workshop sold were only the products that Games Workshop made, then that's what the magazine featured. Mm. So decided not to renew the license for, I don't know, Call of Cthulhu. Then what was the point in us running adverts and features on Call of Cthulhu? We just moved on. Um, I. I'm not positive, but you, the the White Dwarf may be one of the only magazines that is only based on one product line or one company's IP because um, most other magazines have advertising in them, like full page, half page, whatever, from other companies. But White Dwarf, as long as I've known it, doesn't have any sort of, were, did they not want to include any, I guess, competition? No, um, it's a bit more practical than that. Uh, Bear in mind, we were not a magazine publisher. We were a publisher, and the studio wasn't set up to deal with external businesses wanting to buy ad ad space. In the early years, we used to run these classified ads and small ads, and it was a nightmarish job because it was complicated, it was difficult, the revenue was relatively small, the people that placed the ads, sometimes they wouldn't pay, so you'd need to have, (laughs) you'd end up having like the credit controllers from the accounts department involved in trying to chase down these little debts and things. And mm. yeah, just, it was just a pain uh, in so many ways. And it wasn't our core business. It wasn't what we were good at. We weren't experts at doing that. And various points in our in our in the history of the company, um, people would say, well, why don't we go and get Coca-Cola adverts? 
Mm-hmm. And my response was, off you go then. <laughs> <laughs> Let me know. Let me know when you've talked to Coca-Cola and Toyota and IBM and all these other companies that you think might want to put an advert in this tiny little hobby magazine. Yeah. And it's fine. Then we'll put them in there. But the truth was that we didn't have a we didn't have any expertise or resources to put into the selling of the brokering of the magazine and the selling of the ad space and then and then the dealing with the advertisers. We did tiny bits of it occasionally as sort of specials for when we were maybe involved in a licensing deal or if we were sucking up to an old owner. I think we had to do something for an Ian Living, Livingstone board game once because, you know, because Ian was, you know, used to own the company. So it seemed like a fair thing to do. But yeah, but generally speaking, it wasn't within our skill set to do it. That's the main, that's the main. We, and we weren't interested in, hiring people to do it because the rewards didn't seem to be that great we might have made a few thousand pounds per magazine but it's not like it's not like a a big deal so i have one last question about the white dwarf specifically and um you know all of the battle reports they've done all the scenery all the images behind all the models and everything over the years they must have just a massive warehouse of terrain is that true Sadly not, no. Um, well, I think they have now. They've got they've got the Warhammer World Museum, which is um, unbelievably cool with all these amazing custom-built dioramas and showcase setups and things. Um, no, um, all the, scen- the scenery assets and that were always very poorly treated. I think... In, um, um, and, and for the longest time, we didn't really have any. We, we relied on a lot of the stuff, especially in the, I'd say, especially in the in the sort of, uh, certainly through the 80s and, and through most of the 90s, I would say that the vast majority of the stuff you see in White Dwarf are probably actually exactly the same um, things that you'd see in the products. That was the studio's collection. It would be generally... Let's take that table, put some flock on the worn bit so you can't see in the photographs that it's been worn away a bit. Lots of staff armies and staff staff assets used. Yeah, the majority of that that material would have been work material, and it was used um, in the same way that all the computers were used. And all the it's not sitting in glorious cabinets being sort of like fawned over by the staff. It's it's, it's working material. <laughs> and and so two two things is. So um, a lot of material got recycled, you know, space is an issue. So a lot mm-hmm. of stuff gets recycled, oh, that seemingly gets broken down or repurposed or or it, it's been damaged in use, it gets thrown away, whatever, or, or maybe it gets fixed. I don't know, sometimes things did get fixed, but more often not things got replaced if they wore out or broke down. But the second thing that happens is that most of the people using that material become very inevitably become quite casual about it mm-hmm. and they don't tr- so things don't end up being treated with total respect and they just get worn and broken and lost mm-hmm. and trampled on and things happen yeah <laughs> like you, you said know. they're treating it like a tool and a tool you don't necessarily show a, a ton of respect to that's right yeah that changed that started to change in more recent years because the rise of, of sort of the warhammer community side of things and and the um what they call it now warhammer plus 
uh-huh. creation of of in-house videos, and um, I think that's changed. That's changed a lot of the attitude. Fact that when I left um, uh, workshop, the promotion and marketing department, White Dwarf, and the video people had a dedicated room with all racking for all this, all the scenery and such, and all the armies. So that was quite a big change, I think, from previous years. 